Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films. Not always in that order. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. Our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film history one memory at a time. Tonight's guest is writer-director Wayne Kramer, who, amongst many credits, directed one of the great Las Vegas films of all time, a true classic, The Cooler, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Welcome, Wayne. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. Good to be here. I'm so glad to have you. I You're kind of a celebrity in my house because I play, I play The Cooler at least once a year, and I have it on audio tape, so I play it while I'm shaving. <laughs> and it's a thing, as a writer, I've always felt by listening to good dialogue, you can learn how to write good dialogue. And <laughs> so you're never far from my thoughts. Um, well, thank you. Uh, so you record the movie on audio tape as opposed to just playing it with the TV with a picture of or? Yeah, because I this goes back to high school, I would, um, a friend of mine, it's a funny story, I'll make it very quick. A friend of mine, who was a musician had a real real tape recorder. And I don't know why, but he had recorded about five minutes of They Died With Their Boots On, which was a Errol Flynn movie about George Armstrong Custer. And it featured a little musical riff called Gary Owen, which is the theme of the Seventh Cavalry. And every time I would go over to Jeff's house, I'd say, could you play that a little bit? Because in those days, we didn't have DVRs, we didn't have VHSs, we didn't have any recording things. So the only way you could record something from a movie is if you put a microphone up against the uh, speaker. So he, I drove him so nuts, he finally sold me the tape recorder. And I used to play, I used to record movies with a little microphone right up against the speaker. And that's how I learned about movies through the history of just watch, listening over and over again. I play them before I go to bed. It was kind of like a, you know, a, a sleeping pill for me. Not that I had trouble sleeping, but anyway, I've been record. I've recorded movies for years, and I think as a as a writer myself now, I think it's helped me understand good dialogue. But let before, but let me get uh, let me get not before we get into the movie. I wanted to hear a little bit about you in terms of your influences when you were growing up. Obviously, you probably weren't taping audio movies off your recorder like me. Actually, believe it or not, I used to um, take the, I had a little, you know, those old uh, tape recorders. Uh, uh, I don't know which, what the... Cassette recorder? Cassette recorders. You know, the the one where they're flat looking, you put the tape on the top, you know, the buttons in the front. Uh, I would, I used to, uh, now I didn't have access to a lot of films because I grew up in South Africa. And so I had a, I was mainly using that to record uh, the film scores or the TV themes or things like The Saint or The Avengers. Um, and I did record whole episodes of those too to listen to them kind of like you because there was no way to capture something and there were no video cassettes at that time. And I, most, the, the way most uh, people in South Africa saw their movies at that point, if it wasn't in the movie theater was by renting 16 millimeter prints from film shops, they had 16 millimeter film shops. So my family were were, were, were not very uh, wealthy, so we couldn't afford a 16 millimeter projector. 
So it was only on rare occasions that we'd get a, a film projector, we'd rent one, and usually with a James Bond movie on a birthday party, or, or and all the American TV uh, shows were available in like 16 millimeter one hour reels um, as episodes, but never the whole season. It was always like you got a couple of like the Mod Squad or a couple of uh, Frank Cannon or or Mannix or whatever it was, but you never, or Batman was a very popular one with me. So even uh, when we used to rent those movies, I'd put a tape recorder in front of the speaker and I used to do it in front of the television too. So we do have that in common because I did want to, not so much to um, go over the dialogue in my head, but just to revisit the experience of the film, like to have some ownership of it afterwards. Um, sure. Yeah, and it was the only way I could get a lot of the the, the film themes and the and the, the pieces of music. Uh, so so uh, I forget the original question, but uh, well, yeah. no, no. I, I, the question was yeah. uh, your influences growing up as since you obviously are a filmmaker. As a filmmaker, what do you think were the films that probably had the biggest impact on you as growing up? Um. Well, definitely uh, the early James Bond films. Mm -hmm. um, the first one I saw was Goldfinger uh, at a birthday party. I had heard about James Bond. I had no idea what he looked like. And when Sean Connery came on the screen, I was like, that can't be James Bond. Like, it just, he didn't strike me as the sort of uh, Roger Moore looking kind of figure of the, the traditional, like he is a handsome man, but in a very sort of, uh, unusual, sort of almost a brutal looking guy. And uh, almost like Sean Connery could have been a villain if he, an actor, a supporting actor playing villains, if he hadn't stepped into Bond and had such charisma with the role. But it was that, it was the Bond films. It was, uh, believe it or not, uh, The Wild Bunch. It's a very weird story, this. And I don't know how this ever happened, but I went to a, I must've been about 10 and I went to a children's birthday party and they were, and the movie that they were showing kids because it was a Western and I thought they didn't think twice about it was The Wild Bunch. However, The Wild Bunch was banned in South Africa. I don't know where the hell they got this print. It was the full <laughs> uncut one with all the bloodshed and nudity and whatever. And as kids were sitting there staring at the screen, uh, from my point of view, this was the greatest movie I'd ever seen. <laughs> um, so I remember that one specifically. I... Uh, I, I liked crime films. I always did. I liked cop films. Um, did this this it, I, you don't hear too much about South Africa's film industry. Was there an industry in South Africa? There was Africa? no industry to speak of. Um, there were productions, international productions would come over there and they would shoot there like the uh, uh, the Roger Moore films like The Wild Geese or Shout oh, the Devil. Shout the Devil. Gold. What about Zulu? Zulu, you were, yeah, they would have been in the, cause what year it was Zulu? Because I definitely wouldn't have been aware of it shooting in South Africa because I would be, I don't even know if I was born yet. It was what? Uh, 64. 64. So it was one year before I was born. Uh, another great John Barry score. Uh, uh, so I wasn't aware of that. I was aware when, uh, and there were a lot of co-productions and things that were made that, uh, sometimes I wasn't aware of, but it was usually they were making films based on Wilbur Smith and they needed Africa. Uh, so that, but the South African industry itself was very insular. 
a lot of it was mostly films made in the Afrikaans language for a very small uh, audience. It was just white, white South African Afrikaans speaking people. Um, there was that one breakout uh, film, The Gods Must Be Crazy, which I think was a complete fluke. Right. And I know the rest of the world loves that movie, but I can't sit through it. I find it excruciating. <laughs> uh, certainly not made with any kind of great craft, in my opinion. Uh, well, when when I first met you and you told me about The Cooler, I, I, I thought it was the coolest thing because I, I grew up going to Las Vegas with my parents. You know, some people traveled the Orient. They went to the Mediterranean. They went to South America. We went to Vegas every year. Uh, Memorial Day weekend, the family drove across the desert. And to this day, I love driving across the desert because I associate it with those first trips to Las Vegas. And interestingly, the first year I was in Las Vegas was the same year that Ocean's Eleven, the original, was right. released. So I I was walking, you know, I was walking by the Sands Hotel. To me, it was a movie set from Ocean's Eleven, you know, that kind of stuff. And the fact that your story is pitting old Vegas versus new Vegas yeah. through the eyes of mm -hmm. Alec Baldwin's career is fascinating. Can you tell me a little bit about the um, the genesis of how you came up with this story? Well, the actual, I guess if you want to call it the logline of the cooler was my uh, co-writer on that project, um, a guy named Frank Hanna, who was a, a guy I'd known for a friend, I'd known for a couple of years. And I had had sort of more inroads into industry. I'd already sold uh, a spec script uh, to 20th Century Fox that eventually became the not very good movie Mindhunters that was directed by Rennie Hall and many years later uh, through Dimension. It was a whole other story of where the project kept jumping around. But so Frank used to send me ideas of uh, just sort of one, two liners of, of films that he, of scripts that he was intending to write. And, uh, you know, most of them didn't really resonate with me. And then one day among three or four other log lines, he sent me the log line of a guy who has such bad luck, it's contagious. And Frank is the guy who goes to Vegas all the time, and he's uh, he loves to gamble. I'm I'm not somebody who likes to lose money that way. So it, uh, I'm smart. <laughs> I tend to appreciate uh, observing the world, but I'm not a participant in it much. And and then the the, the you know the logline was, and then the guy falls in love and gets lady luck and can no longer be effective at at killing the uh, the luck for people in a casino. And I thought there was, and, and I loved the idea. And I initially just said to Frank, well, that's the one you should write. And and he said, yeah, okay, let me think about it. And a couple of days later, it was still resonating in my head. And I said, this is the perfect independent movie. I, so I called Frank up and I said to him, uh, would you be willing to, you know, have me write the, or write, or let's work on this together. But I'm only going to do it in one condition that I'm the director of the film. And so when the script gets shopped around town and everybody says how much they love it uh, and throws big money at us, I'm not going to back away and take the money because I already made a little bit of money, my fuck you money from the other project. And I said, uh, and that one I had wanted to direct and people said, well, you're never going to get your deal if you, if you insist on directing. So I thought, okay, I'll give that one away. But I said, be prepared because they're not going to want me to direct it because I'm a considered a first time director. So he said, okay. And I said, and my other condition, not really a condition, it was just the only way I felt comfortable writing it is I said, look, you're Mr. Las Vegas. You know all about gambling. You know sort of the vibe down at the tables. 
you're going to write those scenes and I'm going to write the, the other stuff around it, the character stuff, uh, the, you know, the relationship between uh, Bernie and Natalie and sort of the Baldwin monologues and all that, you know, so I divided up the scenes that way. And so, uh, so we beat out the story. If my memory is correct of about two or three days in my apartment, we sort of just said, and this would happen. Oh, this would happen. Pitched it like that. It had a complete different ending at that time. And then I said, okay, you go write those scenes. I'll write these scenes. And I think about three weeks later or less, Frank sent me his scenes and I had my scenes, put them together. And then from that point on, I just sort of started writing it and finessing it. And, uh, and it took about four years, the process from when we, which in my opinion right now is actually good time. It's, it's not that long amount of time. I've got projects that are going 20 years. And, um, and they started to get a, a, I found this uh, producing uh, partner on the film, this guy named Michael Pierce, who I had met him on, on a general meeting. And he was interested in me writing something else. And I said, actually, I'm working on this. What do you think of this? He said, I like that. Uh, let's try and get that set up. And then it was just years of trying to get that, get the project set up, me sort of doing rewrites based on people's input, because the original script was set in the 70s. It was actually a period film. Oh, wow. Okay. And sort of was dealing with the same thing. That's sort of a... Yeah, it didn't, it actually, if I'm remembering it right, it didn't have as much of the conflict between New Vegas and Old Vegas, because it was just Old Vegas, or Classic Vegas, whatever you want to call it. And uh, it was proving to be a more expensive movie, because it was period, and everything had to be period. And uh, an executive, uh, or a friend of somebody's, looked at the script and said, you know, since you're making this as an independent film, why don't you make it as a contemporary film about this casino being the last casino of that type uh, colliding with the modern Vegas? And it was like a light bulb going off saying, okay, now we don't have the expense of making period. We can make everything that goes on in the Shangri-La casino, which is the Alec Baldwin's casino, uh, feel sort of period-like and, and out of the 70s, but we don't have to... Uh, uh, be authentic to it in a way. It should just be a, but outside in the world, we didn't have to um, address the world as if it was 1970 something. And then I, and then the, um, the dialogue I think became much clearer about the, uh, the fight to, to maintain the old school way of doing things. I think it might've been in the script a little bit, but um, I think it became more, and the ending of the script, um, I think it changed it a couple of weeks before we actually started pre-production on the film, because in the original script, uh, Bill Macy and Mirabella's character, uh, I mean, Bill Macy dies uh, when they leave Vegas, they stop at a, um, a gas station to get like some snacks and things for the road. And uh, the Ron Livingston character had sent his goons out. Uh, and and you, you, it, it was actually a good ending. Um, uh, and maybe would have gone, all, uh, it might have gone over better with the sort of the critics or the art house crowd. But uh, it, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't satisfying emotionally to me. And it broke, 
and it broke the rules i felt that was the most important thing this friend pointed out to me you know you break your own rules in the end because maria bello is in love with him he should be protected how can he die and you know everything goes good for him when he's in love and what happened in the old version is he uh she goes into the gas station to buy the supplies snacks and he stays in the car and we follow her and just sort of in the peripheral vision you'll see a car pulling up next to theirs and when the camera comes back with her and she gets in the car she sees he's been shot and they've got all this money that they won from the casino and as she opens the door to sort of try and help him, the money blows out. It's all over the gas station, all over the gas station. And she has a choice. Is she going to collect the money and let him die? Or is she going to forget the money and drive him back to Vegas to get some medical attention? And that's what she does. She puts him in the backseat of the car and she's driving back to Vegas. But you can tell, and then she's holding his hand over the seat, but you can tell that he, he's not going to make it. Uh, and so it's kind of a, it's like Vegas always wins. The house always wins kind of ending. I, I would have walked out of the theater, been real pissed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, you know, the, the, the ending is perfect for what it is because yeah. it's because unexpected. It's a fairy tale, you know, it's a, it's yes, a, it's it a Vegas a fairy, fairy tale. And I think on that movie, uh, I think the audience really wanted them to succeed. And, and, but the funny thing is, you know, the, uh, the more high-end sort of critics, the sort of movie viewers, they all want, they don't want to feel emotion in movies anymore. I find this with in, in some of my other movies and movies that I enjoy that get terrible reviews. They don't want to feel anything. They just want it to be very sterile and uh, and super intellectual. And, and it's like emotion, whether it's in the scene or in the music, is just a black mark for them. And... And I don't like things to be schmaltzy or anything, but I feel like they don't, anytime a movie makes them feel something, they hold it against them. I found that. Um, well, try try showing comedies to executives. I, I think that the sense of humor has completely disappeared from readers and executives. You know, we give, I I, I write comedy with a partner and we, we have readings and we invite an audience and they're, they're falling out, out of the aisles. Right. And we get we we get script reviews back saying nothing about the humor. They don't, never say anything about whether it was funny or not. And I, I just come to the conclusion that uh, that comedy, uh, you know, people's sense of humor has completely died. Um, but you're you're telling me that once the script uh, was finished and you're locked in as the director, you had trouble selling this. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people responded to the script and saw the potential in it, but they didn't want me to direct it. And um, and then the, there was another situation where some investors said, oh, yeah, we'll we'll do it with you. But behind the scenes, they're trying to talk my producing partner out of like convincing me not to direct it. And finally, what happened, and it's actually very much a coincidence that we're doing this uh, podcast today is an agent at ICM read it and he knew that Ed Pressman was starting a new production company uh, that was supposed to shoot digital features for like under a million dollars or around a million dollars and he submitted it to, submitted it to them or to a, another producer named Sean Thurst who had a deal with Pressman or was I think that's how it worked. 
and they liked the script and they were interested in meeting me to talk about it. And of course, Ed Pressman ended up financing the film and he, uh, Ed passed away just a few days ago. And as you said in your post on Facebook, you said that he was known for protecting young directors. Yeah, he was, uh, I mean, you know, I didn't realize how good I had it um, because he was filmmaker and the creative person first. And as long as you stayed within the budget he gave you, he basically supported you. And I didn't just like walk in there and say, here's my script, let me direct it. I had storyboarded the entire movie. So I came in with a binder that they could see from the first shot to the last shot. You know, there were like maybe a thousand storyboards that I'd sketched myself. And they could see that I really um, uh, knew what I wanted to do with the film. You and actually, he, per you personally sketched a thousand storyboards? Yeah, I always draw my own storyboards, yeah. Oh, wow, that's very um, impressive. And but in that situation, you know, it, uh, and I don't, you know, all these people, they do these lookbooks today. And I'm thinking, all you're doing is stealing pictures from somebody else's movie and somebody else's art. And you're not really showing how you're going to make the movie. It's it's really easy to say, oh, I want my movie to look like that. And they make fancy lookbooks and they pick who they think the actors should be. And I and think I, part of I think part of the reason you're seeing all this audio visual stuff is that nobody wants to read anymore. To get somebody to actually physically read a screenplay, you literally have to twist their arm or give them a reason for doing it. Because I, and I, I'm, I know exactly what you mean. Everybody says, "Well, where's your deck? Where's your lookbook? Yeah. Where's your sizzle reel?" It, it's gotten to be crazy. I mean, I've even had to make a few of them, and I look at them and I go, "Yeah, okay, uh, it's nice, but that tells me nothing about how you're going to make this movie, yeah. other than you think it should look like this film or that film." Um, but really, this, yeah. um, um, you know, just going back to that. Um, uh, so they, you know, they, uh, so very, and Ed was in that meeting and very soon after that, they said, um, okay, let's make that. But we had been trying to, I always knew I had written the role. Both Frank and I talked about it, that the role should be that we see this guy as Bill Macy. We couldn't think of another person who could do it. So during that process, when when Michael Pierce was the producer, he had got the script to Bill Macy's, I guess it was his commercial agent or something. And Bill ended up reading it. This was early in the process. He said, yeah, I like this. Come back to me when you've got the financing. So when Ed came on board and now we did have the financing and we went back to Bill, he was like, yeah, I've played these losers a million times. I don't want to do this anymore. And he had just been cast in Jurassic Park 3. And he was looking at a bigger studio career, big paydays. And, and I remember his agent, Chris Schmidt, one, who was his agent at the time, a wonderful uh, uh, woman. Uh, but she thought I was deranged because I used to call up every week and say, if Bill doesn't do this movie, I'm not gonna, the movie's not going to happen. And she thought, you know, she said, you've got to stop calling. And, uh, but I could only see it that way. And then Ed, when Ed came on board, Ed had worked with, uh, I believe if Ed had done something with Bill in the past or Ed knew Bill. And so Ed uh, reached out to Bill and I think Ed promised Bill that he would finance something for Bill to direct if he would just meet me. 
because Bill didn't want to meet me because he knew if he sort of actually met the real human being, it'd be harder to say no to. <laughs> and I understand that. But finally, we thought we were actually going to go ahead and do it. And we were throwing out names like, and I was never happy with any of them, like Kelsey Grandma and uh, other people did it. And I honestly just never saw anybody but Bill Macy. And I thought, okay, I guess I'm making the movie without the person I thought it was going to be. And then sort of, I think we weren't in actual pre-production yet, but it might have been a few weeks before. And we hadn't really like, we'd got, we're getting interest from actors, but we hadn't locked anyone down. I get a phone call from one of the producers and he says, are you still interested in Bill Macy doing this? And I said, absolutely. And he says, okay, he's willing to meet you. And that was sort of the backstory is Ed had sort of, Ed never stopped calling him either. I think between Ed and myself tag teaming Bill's agent, they were like just worn down. And I think if it was if if it was happening today, they would have probably uh, called us out for harassment or something. But <laughs> so you but, double teamed them. Yeah, well, Ed. I mean, you know, Ed's body of work and Ed's. You know, I think I think Bill realized there could be something here if if Ed was so on board with it. And I'll never forget the the day I, I first met Bill. We met at a. Um, just a restaurant in uh, West Hollywood. And I got there a little early, maybe 10, 15 minutes early, and I was waiting for him. And he did, I don't think he knew what I looked like, but I obviously knew what he looked like. So the moment he came through the door, and I knew this was a defining moment in my life. I knew if I like fucked this up, I you know, nothing good was going to happen. I was not going to, you know, it was just one of those things, you know, you know that you have to be on and you have to do it. And uh, so I went up to Bill and I introduced myself and said, hi, Bill, I'm Wayne Kramer. Thanks for taking the meeting. And he shook my hand and he said, yeah, hi, I'm Bill Macy. And he said, I just want to let you know I haven't committed to this movie. That was his opening, his opening sentence to me. And I was like, oh, boy. And, he, you know, Bill was tough, not as an actor, because he was wonderful as an actor and a super amazing collaborator. But in that first meeting, he drilled me. And I brought the storyboards and I brought, you know, but he, you know, he asked me questions what, about what do you, I think makes a director and what's the most important role a director has in the set. And Bill's all about, you better know, your, you better be prepared. I don't want to have to go into overtime. I'm going to bring my, you know, I'm going to learn my performance and I'm going to bring it and I expect you to know what you're going to do and you need to run the ship like a captain. And after that meeting, I, he went back and he told uh, Ed Pressman to do the movie. Um, has, has an actor ever done that to you in, in ever after him? Has everyone challenged you like that? Uh, no, not in that way, but in their own, you know, they're always like checking you out in the, that meeting and looking to see if you sort of how, I think the thing they're looking to see is a, how passionate you are about it and B, you know, because after the cooler, remember, I had something to show when I met other actors. Um, there, I wasn't going in blind. Right. They weren't going in blind, should I say? So they could always look at the cooler. They could look at something else. And 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 in a way, being a first-time director is a blessing and a curse, because the blessing is they can't look at your resume and go, "Oh, I hated that film," and I don't want to work with a guy. So so you're really selling yourself. Um, when you've got some credits then they're either going to appreciate what you've done or they're going to think, I don't, you know, might be a nice guy, but I'm not really crazy about his work. Well, you know, um, 
this is a very special film on many levels and getting Macy was such a cool. What about Alec Baldwin? I read somewhere that one of your first choices was Chaz Palminteri to play this casino boss. Is that true? Right. I, I had known, I knew Chaz because I had another project um, that Chaz loved and wanted to do. And, and uh, to this day, I don't know why it's never happened. Uh, and he finally, I think, uh, at the time when Chaz liked the other project, he was much more of a box office draw. He was just coming off Bronx Tale and um, it, it was doing it. I was supposed to do it with uh, an independent company way back then. I think he's still around. Carrie, uh, I know he's around, Carrie Broker, but I think his company is still around. Avenue Pictures? Yeah, Avenue. And they put me together with Chaz and Chaz and I liked each other and Chaz liked the project. And I think, I don't know what happened, why it didn't happen. Uh, but, but every year or two, I get a call from Chaz saying, is the script still available? I think I've got financing and it never turns out to be anything. But I, at that time, Chaz was about the only actor I did know. And, um, and so when we were writing The Cool, I was writing it for him because I knew I could get the script to him directly. And it felt like uh, he would be any to this day, he would have done a good job. Not I think Alec was was unique in that role. I don't think anybody could have anybody could have really brought that sort of um, sort of malevolent, but almost likable edge that Alec brings to that. I think Chaz is a great actor, but a Chaz would have sort of probably been closer to just playing the sort of the more, I don't want to say cliched version because people knew Chaz as that kind of mobster figure, but Alec brought something a little more resonant under the surface uh, that, um, you know, he was a leading man transitioning into a supporting actor and he still had that dangerous charisma. Uh, so with Chaz, what happened is I sent him the script and he initially read it and he was busy with other projects. And he said, I like this. I have a few notes. And I think I addressed the notes for Chaz, sent it back to him and I didn't hear back. And, uh, and I thought, okay, maybe when the financing gets together, I'll uh, approach Chaz again. And in the interim, uh, when Ed Pressman came on, he said, what do you think about Alec Baldwin? And I was like, fuck hell. Yeah. If I could uh, get Alec Baldwin, that would be amazing. You know, and Chaz hadn't committed to the project, so I didn't feel like I was burning him in any way. Uh, and actually, it was easier to get Alec on the movie than Bill. Uh, did you have a Did you have a meeting with Alec first? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, the story Alec tells, and this is before I met him, and I think you might have heard the story, is that he was sent the script and he started reading it, and he got to the point where he has to kick. Uh, uh, the character, uh, Stella Warren's character in the stomach, and she's supposed to be pregnant. Right. And he threw the script down at that point and said, I can't play this. This is, this is insane. And he called his agent to tell him he wasn't interested. And the agent said, just keep reading. And so he picked the script back up. Sword was sort of a, you know, was the ruse. I'm spoiling the movie here. Um, and then he was kind of fascinated and kept reading. So after that, he said, yeah, okay, I'm interested. Let me meet, let me meet this guy. So I went over to uh, his offices in Santa Monica and I met him and we had a good meeting. And, and Alec is a, and Alec's one of those meetings where it was a very different first meeting than Bill because Bill sort of just puts it on the line. Alec is very cagey and edgy and you just sort of, but I knew Alec's work, I knew his films. And that's one thing when I go in and meet with actors, 
I haven't, I generally have a good rapport with them because I, I'm a film lover and I've seen their work and I've seen their obscure work and I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen, and I've done my homework on them and, uh, and we, you know, we did have a, and we, and we did connect to that. And I think Alec, uh, but Alec was like, Alec's issue wasn't like, oh, I'm ready to do this movie. It was, is this movie real? And so I had to, I love Alec, by the way. Um, and it's so tragic what's happening to him and it should not be happening to him. But um, I remember now Bill was fully on board. And once Bill was fully on board, he becomes your partner in crime. So I said to Bill, how do we get Alec to commit? And Bill said, okay, let's set up a dinner between the three of us and I'll work him for you. And, uh, and so that's what happened. We set up the dinner and it went well. There was good chemistry between all of us. And I think after that, Alec was like, okay, let's do it. During, during the whole writing process and during this whole period, had you gone to Las Vegas to soak up some of the atmosphere or is it just totally based on your partner? No, I'd been to Vegas a few times, but I, I probably didn't hang around in the, uh, in the, uh, what do you call it? The Fremont area that much. Yeah, uh, the old, old school Vegas. Yeah, but we did scout, start scouting Las Vegas when we were going to do the movie and got to see that um, and went in there. And the reason we couldn't shoot in actual Las Vegas other than some of the exterior shots is because you can't control it. And we didn't have the, we didn't have the budget to shut them down and have and pay them for what they would win or lose that uh, you know that night um and the ceilings in the casinos that we thought were more the design of our kind of uh casinos were too low and they wouldn't uh, allow us to leave our lights up we'd have to break down the entire so-called set every night and and it would be cost so much money in terms of labor to break it down and then to set it up again every day I was really upset about it and really wanted to keep it in Vegas. Um, but the line producer uh, and a guy named Elliot Rosenblatt was very smart. He found, he did his research and he found a casino in a casino hotel in Reno, Nevada that was undergoing, was between ownerships or it had just been taken over by new ownerships ownership and they were remodeling the whole place but they hadn't they had just sort of started the remodel but they so they said to us basically you could come into a casino you could do any production design you want um fix it up and they had all the slot machines which looked like old ones uh everything sort of just fell into place and they allowed us to house an entire crew in the very hotel where the casino was and then they ended up catering the entire production so it became we had very few um, changes in location, uh, um, so we didn't spend a lot, of, waste a lot of time and money moving to different uh, like base camps and uh, and moving the whole machinery of the production. How uh, far? How far from the casino was the motel? It was just around the corner. Oh, perfect! And, so literally, but, the, but the interior of the motel room was a set that we actually built in the casino. You know the stage where Paul Savino performs? We built it backstage behind that uh, oh. area. So we only used the motel for the exteriors. And that was the only, I believe it was the only real set we, that Toby Corbett, our production designer, built. Everything else was taking 
even the hospital where Bill Macy is waiting for Maria Bella to come out after she's been beaten up. That was just another, it was another back area of the hotel uh, dressed up. And then the interior was like an administration office. Uh, Alex's office inside the casino was a restaurant at the top of the casino uh, hotel. Uh, everything was consolidated uh, except for the carnival, which was at another uh, hotel, maybe around the corner somewhere. I think uh, it was one of the big name hotels in uh, Reno. In Reno, yeah, everything was shot in Reno except for I did a day on Fremont, uh, a quick day on Fremont Street with the with the actors. You know the scene where uh, I think it's after the first love scene where Bill and Maria. Is it after the first or no, the second, the second, maybe it's the second love scene where they're walking and there's the big guy and the guy comes on stilts and holds out, right, the, right. which was just a guy who was walking that day. And we said, hey, you want to be in the movie? <laughs> and it was starting to get dicey because we didn't have a lot of security and people were recognizing Bill Macy and maybe Maria as well. Um, and so they were coming into our shots. Uh, and then also the helicopter footage over Vegas is authentic as well. Uh, tell us about Maria Bello. How did she come into the equation? Uh, Maria auditioned for it. You know, once um, uh, Bill Macy was attached, because he was an absolute indie darling of the scene at that time. You know, Bill Macy was probably one of the most coveted actors in independent film because he was coming off Fargo and Boogie Nights and all these things. Um, everybody wanted to work with uh, Bill. It wasn't about me at all. And uh, and then once Alec was attached, uh, they were realizing, oh, this is a great cast. So we had like wonderful actresses come in and audition for it. And I, we did offer it ahead of time to two actresses, both who turned it down. Um, I believe the first actress was Marissa Tomei, um, who would have been great. And maybe it was the nudity that scared them. And, uh, and the second actress was Tony Collette, um, who thought it could be interesting. And other than that, then it was just, okay, let's see who's interested in doing that. And the two actors that I ended up being interested in at the end was Maria and Kim Dickens. I don't know if you know Kim. Oh, sure, of course. Yeah. 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 And I think the consensus was, uh, and Maria was super passionate for it. You know, Maria was... Uh, she her, she was on ER and uh, she you well, know by she, the way on ER when Bill Macy was on ER yeah and she had done like supporting roles in like Payback with Mel Gibson and uh, a couple of things but uh, she hadn't broken through I think The Cooler was the movie that opened all the doors for her if I if I'm not mistaken but she came in she auditioned I think she recorded herself the first time and I think if I'm remembering this right. She thought she made herself look too like run down, you know, because <laughs> uh, she though know, like harassed, you know, stressed out waitress. And I think what I said was, uh, can she do it again and try and, you know, just sort of uh, make herself, you know, uh, uh, just sort of make herself look a bit more appealing because she had really looked run down. And, and so I know she came and did it in person the second time. And uh, we all loved her. And, uh, and, and she was hungry for it. And I remember, and she was, you know, she said, look, uh, we went out, I think we went out for dinner. And I said, you know, this film obviously has um, 
you know, intimate scenes and I want to do them right. And she says, I'm happy to do them the way you want them. And I'm, and I don't have a problem with it. Cause I feel it's, um, it, it's, um, you know, the script requires it and, uh, it's serving the film. Yeah. And she was, and, and, and then I remember there was one of the original selling points to Bill was, you know, Bill, you're, you're been in all these wonderful films, but you're never the love interest. You're never the guy who has the sex scene. And uh, he was terrified about that. But uh, I think it also, I think he also liked the idea that he was going to be the romantic lead. Well, the scene, the scene in the bedroom, when they, after having to listen to their neighbors love making sounds all that time, he he convinces Maria's character to help him make some noise. I thought that right. was hysterically funny. You know, I think, and that was, uh, I think Bill and Maria conspired to come up with that. Uh, they came to me, I think it was the day before we were supposed to shoot that scene. And they said, we've got a great idea for what we, because I think it was written as, the way it was originally written is there was a neighbor and you hear the neighbor the first time she's a prostitute and she's having sex the first time bill's like the lonely guy on the bed and in the beginning and and it's annoying him and so in the way it was written they were having sex again and and it was rowdy you know they were rowdy and then the there was a banging on the door by some john saying shut the fuck up or something and they came back and said let's try this and i said great let's do that it was funny as hell <laughs> well, you know, in, in movies like this, um, casting is everything, uh, but particularly the supporting roles. You know, you have to be, I can't say enough about your supporting cast because there are just so many interesting facets. For instance, you get Paul Servino to play Buddy, and Paul brings so much gravitas to that role. That's a funny, you know, that's a funny story because that character was originally going to be um, Wayne Newton. And <laughs> I remember going to Vegas and going to one of his shows and meeting him backstage. And because uh, we wanted somebody who really was identified with being that kind of Vegas uh, performer. And I'm trying to think what happened, why it didn't work out, whether he wasn't available or he lost, uh, he sort of uh, chickened out. Or I'm not even sure uh, to this day really what happened. But then I think we heard, I think, you know, Kathy Sandridge and Amanda Mackey cast the movie and they were wonderful. And Amanda Mackey sadly also just passed away. Uh, but they were great. And so they got the script out and we heard back that Paul Savino was interested in wanting to do this because Paul Savino was a fancy himself as a singer as well. Um, so uh, everybody was like, and I think we we're already in pre-production when this was happening. We were still trying to cast that role. And, and everyone was like, wow, awesome. Paul Savino, great. You know, so I think I had a phone call with him and Paul Sabino was a larger than life figure, you know, like Paul Sabino was, um, he was into opera singing and, uh, and Paul Sabino, um, he, uh, he, he would basically uh, tell you how wonderful he was and everything he did. And he was an interesting guy. I kind of liked him, but he was also very like, uh, uh, he was a little like short tempered and all that, but it was, it, it, it it was fine. I mean, I don't think he ever realized how close it came to his main scene with Baldwin on the couch talking about the cycle of life with the lions, how close they came to being on the cutting room floor. Um, because that scene, 
a lot of uh, on the producing side uh, they felt that scene dragged the movie down and finally like I was sort of beaten into submission I said okay we'll cut it you only really just saw a very early part where Baldwin comes in and gives Paul Savino the panties and says uh, this is what somebody left on the door and then you see him shoot up but you don't see the rest of that and after the film was locked uh my post supervisor is a wonderful guy chris miller who was a real supporter of the film he, he came in and i think he watched the, the the cut on it and sound mixing had started on the film and all the rest of the stuff that happens and and he said where the hell is that scene that's like uh, one of the best scenes in the film and i said well everybody wanted it a cut and he goes you're crazy you've got to put the scene in. that's the guy's performance and I said, I agree with you, you know, but I'm a first time director, so I don't have all this power that people might think you have. And he says, no, call up Ed and tell him you're putting the scene back in the movie. And I did feel, because I was being tortured about it silently. I said, I, th I, you know, I felt like this was a mistake. So I called up Ed and it was a sort of a long contentious conversation because Ed was like, the movie's locked, all of this is up. And I said, I swear, Ed, this is an important scene. Please, I really believe in it. Finally, this is what made Ed Pressman such a great producer because it was Harvey Weinstein to be go fuck yourself. And Ed was, okay, put it back in if you really feel that way. And Paul never knew that, you know, because uh, that was his whole performance in the movie, aside from the, the stuff in the theater. Um, no, he was, he was great. Um, the other, the other characters I really liked, I, I liked, um, I liked Arthur Noscarella's Nicky Fingers character. Yeah. Talk about a guy who like, uh, he just he just says mob with a, a couple of words. <laughs> well, Arthur, Arthur Nascarella, I love to death. He's been in two of my movies. He was in Running Skate as well. And um, he's such a great guy. Now, the story with Arthur Nascarella is he was a new NYPD narcotics cop, narcotics detective, and he's retired and he was in the military. Arthur, Arthur is the real deal. He's a tough as nails you know, super great human being, but he's he's led the life. Uh, you, you know, tell me, he said some of my greatest moments in life when we're running on rooftops, chasing drug dealers. He, he would tell the story how he arrested, um, who, uh, who's the guy from the, uh, the Chicago 7 that got arrested? Um, oh, um yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i forget the name that he loved telling that story how he busted him for drugs and uh um and uh so well, well being a, being a crap shooter when he comes to the table to yeah. shoot crap I, I always get interested in how scenes are shot and and, and then he, he he's dissed by that kid yeah and then beats the living crap out of him and gets blood on bill macy's hands and uh it, it's just a powerful scene uh, the other character, I, again, there were so many um, that just had resonance, uh, even choosing Ron Livingston to play the college kid who wants to take over the casino, I thought was a good choice as well. Ron was great. Um, like all these independent films, what people don't realize is you end up casting somebody and at the last minute somebody falls out or somebody uh, gets another movie or something happens. So Ron was also originally not the guy cast in that role. I forget the name of the actor. Uh, uh, he's been on TV a lot, but you wouldn't recognize him as much as Ron Livingston uh, today. 
And when he fell out, um, uh, I think Ron got brought up and I loved the idea. I didn't meet Ron. I remember now I didn't meet Ron until he turned up on set. And Ron is a meticulous actor. He, he just wanted to know, um, you know, who is Larry and, and what's really going on with these coolers and what do they really do? And, you know, and, uh, and Ron was great. Um, such Ron? a pro, just a, uh, just an absolute pro, easy to work with. And I remember the scene where Alec breaks Ron, uh, Ron's character's arm in the bathroom near the end. Um, I wanted to, you know, being an independent film, uh, you don't always get the A-list crew. And when we shot that sequence and I did it all on Steadicam, um, and Alec was like, it, it, was a, it was a tough scene. It was an interesting scene because Alec had come to me and said, I don't want to say all this dialogue, which is the callback to like what Ron Livingston says in the casino earlier about, you know. Muted tones. Yes, yeah, what makes the casino great. Alec <laughs> said, I just want to go in there and I just want to break his arm. And I said, Alec, please, this is the one scene in the movie where I'm asking you to do the dialogue as written because it's a callback to a payoff on all the original dialogue Ron said and at the very least just do it both ways for me and then Alex said okay how are you shooting this and I said we're going to be on Steadicam and he goes oh you're going to be on the Steadicam the focus is going to get screwed up you know and I said no no it's all handled Alec really so so we shoot it, Alec comes in, I'm expecting him to not listen to my direction or maybe give me one half-hearted uh, version of it. Comes in, he only does it my way, he's amazing. The scene goes great. Uh, Ron Livingston's last day on the shoot, so he flies back to LA. I get a phone call from my editor, the entire scene is out of focus. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, now, oh shit. So now we got to fly Ron back. I've got to be the one to go to tell Alec that the, that his great performance in a way that he didn't even want to act it in the first place has to be redone. It was like uh, those are the days when it's not like going up to Bill Macy and Bill Macy go, oh, that sucks, but let's go do it. You know, with Alec, it's like, oh, Jesus. So I go up to Alec and I say, Alec, unfortunately, we've got to shoot the scene again because we've got focus issues. And he goes, I fucking knew it. That steady cam. And I and he said, you're not shooting it on steady cam anymore. I go, no, Alec, we are. We're doing it exactly the same way, so please just like work with me. And he was like, ah, you know. And oh, you I, you only you only did one take uh, with the first Steadicam, and then you wrapped it after one take. I think there might have been more than one take, but um, they were uh, all, all of them were buzzed. Oh, and God. And, the, and it was like a it was a stunt shot too, because when uh, Ron Livingston is thrown up against the wall, that's a stunt man who then drops out of frame and then Ron's waiting there where Alec comes in and pulls up the real actor. So, so it's sort of done. It's like a complicated shot. But anyway, we went and did it again and Alec did it just as great and uh, and um, and we survived it. But that was Ron's, Ron had to fly back for that. He was a mensch about it. And The other element of the movie, which is such, has such resonance is, uh, is Marky Sham's score. Oh yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it, from the get from the title uh, overture, just just the way it plays through the the movie uh, was Mark uh, one of your early choices. Yeah, this is a story that relates back to uh, James Bond, I guess. Uh, the influences like my favorite composer was always John Barry, and I worshipped at the altar of John Barry. 
And I don't believe for a second, by the way, that Monty Norman composed the Bond theme because I've had lunch with Barry and he, and he said, I composed that fucking theme. And uh, and whatever Monty Norman composed is 5% of what John Barry did. Did, and, did, uh, did John tell you which, what he told me when I interviewed him? Did he tell you that he, he was never more saw specific? It? He was like, I, comp uh, I was uh, when I had lunch with John Barry, I was fortunate enough to go and get invited. Uh, I, a friend of mine worked at this uh, sound mixing studio in Hollywood. He knew I was a huge John Barry fan. And he and he called me up one day and he said, get your ass over here with all your CD covers. John Barry's in one of the studios mixing a short film. And I, it took me five minutes to grab my CDs and dive into my car and I flew over there. And he brought me and introduced me and Barry signed all my CDs and he gave me his latest release at the time, Moviola. And I sat there and I watched them mix. And then afterwards they were all going to lunch. Uh, they, fixed, they finished the mixing and I was able to go to lunch with him. And I was sitting, I think next to Barry during lunch and I was so naive. I did not realize that Monty Norman, there was any contention about that. Uh, this was in the day before internet and you could read all these books about what went down. And so I also saw Monty Norman credited on the, uh, on the records and the CDs as the composer of the James Bond theme. And somehow I naively mentioned something about Monty Norman and the James Bond theme and very just looked at me with like such contempt. And he said, Monty Norman didn't compose the fucking theme I did. And I was like, what? And then everyone at the table also knew, yeah, yeah. John came in and was given, I don't know what he was given. He was given this like really what Monty Norman says was this, we know the story with the-, the Well, the he told me, he told me he got a timesheet. He literally never saw Dr. No. He said he just, yeah. uh, he, he pulled something. He The way he told it to me was that he pulled a, a piece of music from one of his instrumentals called Bees Knees with a plucked guitar and then played around with it and came up with dun 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 dun. That's all Barry. There's, there's no yeah. question that if, if Barry was not there. And the vamp is Barry. Everything about it is Barry. Monty Norman claims and he had this uh, old show tune uh, from an unproduced show. And I think he was a bum, bada, bum, 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 or something like that. It was done with a sitar, Indian sounding. And Barry was like, this isn't going to work. And Barry just did the whole fucking thing. And Monty Norman has cashed, well, he's not alive anymore, but he cashed in on that theme for the entirety of his life. What else in film did Monty Norman compose that anybody remembers that had anything right. close to the vibe and the sound? Of course. Of course. But anyway, so, yeah, so to get back to the cooler, I, I uh, had temped the movie. It was really funny. John Barry composed this beautiful almost Las Vegas sounding theme. He did this, um, he had this, uh, it wasn't for a film soundtrack. Uh, he did a, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of uh, this, this album of just themes that were not supposed to be filmed. They were just themes from his memories. And, but there was a theme on this one. He did two of those. He did the Beyondness of Things and he did, oh, Eternal Echoes is the name of the album. And he had a theme on Eternal Echoes called uh fred and sid and it's such a great vegas overture big band amazing piece of music so i tempt that over the opening titles but i, I uh, and unknowingly or not really realizing the time the rest of the movie i attempt with mark Isham because his pieces were just fitting in beautifully and but i still wanted john barry and so i I, many, many years ago, I worked for John Barry's agent, uh, compiling uh, Richard Kraft, compiling uh, 
music submissions for composers when they were up for a job. So I'd be the one who would take all their scores and go, oh, this might be a good piece for the director here and this piece and that piece. And so I, I reached out to Richard or whoever, maybe it was one of the other agents, and I said, uh, do you think John Barry would be interested in scoring the movie? And we sent over a tape, but I think at the time, from what I hear, I don't know if John ever actually saw the movie, but I think at the time he was uh, involved with The Incredibles. He was supposed to be uh, scoring The Incredibles, and uh, that went south after he turned in his demos and he wasn't reproducing that John Barry 60s Bond sound for them, and he couldn't sort of get on page with it. Many years later, when I did Crossing Over, again, tried to get uh, Barry to do that, and that time, I actually spoke to Barry, wrote him a letter, as originally sent him a script, he didn't want to do it based on script, then Richard said, uh, now that you've got a cut of the movie, send him the movie itself, write him a long letter. I wrote him a letter, and he called me the next day, John did, and it was we had a great conversation, he really liked what I wrote, and he said, send me the movie, we sent him the movie by Korea, and he called me again the day after he watched it, and he said, look, I'm not going to do it, and he wouldn't tell me his reasons why, he... Um, I mean, he was just very like, no, I'm not doing it. Thank you for sending it to me. It was really uh, unfortunate. Although the nightmare that that movie went through, I don't know if John's movie music would have even stayed in the movie since Harvey rejected another whole score. But um, turns out at that time, even uh, Richard said it at the point, uh, at that one point, is John was flirting with a lot of movies, uh, but he didn't end up doing them. And I think at that point, I don't know, he had uh, he had personal issues and he really wasn't able to. Well, he to... had those horrible health issues. The story yeah. I heard over the years was he had been drinking this drink. Well, that was right before, uh, that was right, uh, right, right, I mean, the thing where he recovered right before Dance of the Wolves is when he came back. He had, yeah, his esophagus burst right. from uh, drinking that. But I think later, uh, uh, I think later on in the, um, Early 2000s, um, I think there was more, you know, issues. I'm not, I don't really want to go into it, but there were other issues involved. Be not sure, sure. Issues. Well, he shot, but you got Hisham and Hisham did the opening. Yeah, uh, so, so what yeah. happened next was I said, okay, I'm not getting John Barry. And I said, well, let me, let me think who, who else is going to be right for this movie. And then I looked at the movie and I said, what am I thinking? Mark Isham is basically wall to wall in this movie other than the opening title and and it was at the time mark was a and it still is a very popular composer so it was a big long shot for me to even think i could get mark and we didn't have a budget so i called up mark's agent just cold called the agency and i said i, I you know i've got a movie and to me, what helped the movie was it was a noticeable movie we had a really good cast and i said uh i'm interested in, in uh, having mark uh, score this movie and the agent I spoke to, I think she was a junior agent, she was trying to palm off some younger, newer composers on me because that's what they always do because they knew Mark was more of a big ticket composer. I said, I am only interested in Mark Isham. And she says, okay, well, hold on a moment. Let me see if Mark will be interested. She called me back in like an hour and said, Mark will come see the movie tomorrow. And I thought, oh, that's awesome. So we set up a screening for Mark the next day. Uh, he comes in and I already start schmoozing him because I know all his, his music. The one thing about Mark, the, the score of his, which wasn't really jazz related, I loved all his music, but the score of his that I was obsessed with was Point Break. And it was never available. And uh, and I thought, oh, this is awesome. Even if Mark doesn't want to do the movie, I'm at least going to ask him for his Point Break score. <laughs> <laughs> 
by the way, when by the way, when you're showing him the movie, do you show it to him with the temp music? In I it? did, I did. It must have been very weird for him because not only <laughs> because as a huge film score collector, I have scores that aren't released to the general public. And so when he watched the movie, there were scores in the in the temp that had never been released. And I could have only imagined Mark watching this going, where the hell did you get that from? <laughs> uh, but he loved the movie. And he, you know, afterwards, uh, and he said, oh, look, I'd love to do this and let's figure it out. And basically he made it work, you know. And Mark is a good friend today. I mean, uh, I love Mark. Uh, he's... Um, well, how he, often, how often today, Wayne, do we talk about score anymore? It's just uh, the the classic scores, like the classic films are far and few. I mean, it's... I know that the the classic movie score has been well. There are obviously exceptions, um, but uh, I thought with the cooler. Uh, by the way, I had to ask you the concept of a guy with bad luck going up to a table and and get, the concept of a cooler is based on fact. No, no, it's uh, it's uh, there were I believe coolers who, in the sense of changing the. The concept is more like how do we break a guy's winning streak so there would be people they would if somebody's doing really well at a table they change out the dealer anything to sort of psychologically jinx uh the player change out the deck have somebody offer him a drink more drinks sexy waitress to the table it's sort of a collective thing of how do we uh break this i don't to my knowledge and to frank's knowledge and basically frank made it up but uh, we don't believe that there was anybody anybody's ever worked for a casino who has bad luck, and, <laughs> and, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, it's even though people talk about the cooler now, and I think it's become some kind of a pseudo Vega Vegas parlance. I don't think it, it's not a real thing. The um, there were a couple more actors I wanted to mention before we head toward the finish. Um, I liked. Um, I thought Sean Hatosi did a terrific job as the Bernie's uh, erstwhile son. I thought he was very well, very did very well. Sean's great. <clears throat> Sean did an excellent job, and uh, Sean was, uh, Sean was, you know, he was a, a young actor doing very well at the time as well, and being in independent films, and uh, he was very, very highly recommended. We had a bunch of actors, well-known actors by today's standards, who came in and auditioned for that. And uh, this was one where I really trusted the casting agent on, uh, director on it. Uh, and Kathy, look, Sean is amazing. He'll give you exactly what you want. Uh, and they, they lobbied really hard for him. And I said, OK, uh, he seems great. Uh, let's let's go with him. And Sean was wonderful. And he's such a good guy, too. Sean's terrific. And then the final character I thought was interesting, where, where did you get Joey Fatone on to play um... Johnny Capella. You know, we were, again, looking for somebody who had some, you know, who was already a recognizable pop star to play that. And I, I'm trying to think there were some names that came up that we were trying to chase. I don't know, I don't know why uh, I forget some of them. Like, uh, I, uh, there was a bigger name we were chasing and it didn't work out. And Again, I think Kathy uh, just said, uh, hey, uh, we could get Joey Fatone for this maybe. Uh, Where's the band? Uh, is it InSync? Is that what he was with? Uh, 
I'm so terrible at remembering. Yeah, these. I don't remember either, but he was uh, very good in the role. One yeah. scene that one of the more powerful scenes for me in the movie, in, in a, a series of powerful scenes, is when um, is when uh, Alex Shelley character comes to the motel room and confronts uh, Maria's character and throws her against the mirror. That that was a tough scene. It was a very, uh, very tough scene. And I'll tell you something, the backstory, not the backstory to the scene, but while we were making this movie, Alec was going through a very uh, contentious custody battle with Kim Basinger over his daughter. And it was really like getting him down every day. And he'd be on the phone raging at his lawyers, you know. And the day before we shot the scene or it might even be in the day of it got the national Enquirer published a story that alec physically beat up kim basinger and i and it was out there in the media all the media were picking up and running with it and i'm thinking oh my god now we've got to shoot the scene today or the next day where alec punches maria bella like physically and i'm thinking he's going to come to me and say i can't do the scene this way this was my this was all in my head and I was panicking about it because I knew we needed to have that moment. But to his enormous credit as a professional, Alec didn't even bring it up. He, uh, you know, they played the scene and it was powerful to watch. And uh, both of them were just amazing pros doing that. And I, and uh, I mean, you could hear a pin drop when that scene happened. Uh, it, it was one of the funny things about, one of the interesting things about that scene, Maria Bella is such a, amazing actress that when we we had a loop i believe we had to loop some of her dialogue especially the moment where after he punches her she gets up and she like sort of wipes her mouth or something we hear like this this like uh saliva bubble on her lips and i thought we're never going to get anything like this of what the original sound is but she replicated it down to the saliva bubble in the adr stage it was just phenomenal. It was amazing to see that. Uh, wow. So uh, the movie uh, debuts in 2003. I, I remember seeing it in New York. I, I was there on a, on a trip and my wife went to the east. My wife and I went to the east side and we saw it in one of the smaller theaters and was blown away. How was the reaction to the movie? Uh, was the studio happy with the, with the success of it? Well, it was made as an independent film uh and we debuted it at sundance in the beginning of 2003 so already getting into sundance and being in the dramatic competition was a huge thing for the film it, it created enormous uh, interest and publicity in it and then sundance we were very well received we got great reviews and generally put the movie on the map and uh, and lionsgate came in and there were a few people who wanted to buy it but i was and this was again to ed pressman's credit i said ed we're, please don't sell this to somebody like Harvey Weinstein who's going to cut it up. Uh, the people who buy this movie, uh, they have to agree that this is the cut. And so we kind of liked Lionsgate for it because Lionsgate had been supportive. Uh, at that time, Lionsgate wasn't the Gerard Butler, Bruce Willis action film distributor. They were really doing more interesting, quirky indie films. And uh, and so when Lionsgate sort of stepped up, I think they were the best of both worlds. I think Sony Classics wanted it, and in retrospect, that probably would have been a better way to go. Just because uh, I think they would have, they might not have paid as much upfront, but they would have, they would have given it maybe uh, more love and kept it in theaters longer and just stuck with it. 
uh, even though it was a funny thing, around the time of the the Oscar nomination or during the award season, Lionsgate pulled up a billboard on Sunset Boulevard for the cooler, but they only had enough budget to put it up for a week. It was like <laughs> there and then it was gone, but hey, at least it was up there. So yeah, they were, they were happy. The only issue we ever had, it wasn't an issue, so to speak. Um, we did not submit the film to the ratings board before we finished it in entirety. When it went to Sundance, it was finished. And so after Sundance, when Lionsgate bought it, they submitted it and we got an NC-17. And it was for the uh, second sex scene where Bill, uh, where Bill Macy has been going down a Mirabella and you see that moment where he comes up and you see a pubic hair. And really the MPAA made it about the pubic hair, but clearly it wasn't the pubic hair because they had given many R ratings to shots of pubic hair. It was that they felt the sex scene felt too real. And uh, and I remember Mirabelle and I went to the ratings board and we uh, we appealed and we still lost. And, you know, in Lionsgate, they sort of put it in your lap and they say, what do you want us to do? But really what they're saying is you've got to make an adjustment here because we can't release an NC-17 film. And I, you know, so obviously I didn't want to do that, but my hands were tied. So we found another take that didn't, it wasn't as explicit and we substituted it in. But uh, it's, unfortunately, I think the movie is kind of lost today. I mean, it's gratifying to hear you love it so much and a few people, but it's not a film that uh, I think too many people remember, to be honest. I mean, Lionsgate has never put out a Blu-ray on it, uh, despite me asking them a few times. Uh, I mean, the, the film that's on um, home video, the DVD, I, in my opinion, looks horrible. It doesn't represent how beautiful the actual print looks. Uh, you know, the cinematographer, James Whitaker, he shot it with a bleach bypass process. And, but we put the bleach only into the IP. So when we uh, did the transfer for HD, we took it straight off the negative. And at that time, it was before DIs or DIs were just coming in. We couldn't really replicate the theatrical look of the film. But today we would be able to do it like on 4K, a beautiful DVD, because the actual film is way moodier and more film noirish and these beautiful like hot pools against the shadows. It's, a, it's really a different looking film. And unless you saw it theatrically, you don't actually uh, get the best impact of what the cinematography is. Um, even, uh, but in, you know, just speaking about how I feel, the, f the film is kind of a, a film that's fallen through the cracks. Because even uh, just this week when Ed Pressman died, it's not mentioned in any of his obituaries, yet it was a film that got an Oscar nomination for Alec Baldwin, a Golden Globe nomination for both Alec and Maria. Alec won the National Board of Review. Both Alec and Maria won a whole bunch of other separate uh, critics awards. And, and uh, you know, it's one of Ed's more critically acclaimed films, and yet it doesn't even make, uh, you know, his obituary. So, um, well, it's going to be all over the internet this week because when uh, when I get it, when I get your podcast up on the uh, it, yeah. on the airways, I'm well, look, it's not, I mean, I, it's not about me. It's a terrible tragedy that Ed passed, and uh, and uh, and it's about celebrating Ed's life. But uh, but the point I'm making is, it's not a very well remembered film. Funnily enough, the movie that I am more well remembered for is Running Scared, the one I did after that, right. and that did find it, despite also not. The cooler did better at the box office, but but it didn't make a lot of money. If the cooler was being released today, it would, it would be sold directly to streaming. I can't imagine 
anybody would put it in uh, in theaters. But uh, Running Scared had a poor opening. I think maybe there was some prejudice towards Paul Walker not, not taking him seriously in a movie like this. And the marketing was absolutely terrible. The trailer does not reflect the movie at all. But Running Scared very soon after its release, when it, when it came out on DVD, found an audience very quickly and uh, had developed like uh, between cable and DVD, has developed almost like a cult audience. Uh, so it is, uh, even if you go on, let's say, I don't know if it's a good barometer or not, but IMDb running scared has over 100,000 votes and the cooler is down at 30 something, you know, so, uh, but the cooler was definitely the more acclaimed film for sure. Sure, sure. Are you at liberty to tell us a little bit about the movie you're in pre-production on? Um, you know, the movie, unfortunately, now has been pushed to June, and this is just a recent thing, so... I don't really uh, want to get into it too much because it's not announced yet. No, no, no. Uh, that's that's completely would, fine. Yeah, it would be something uh, close in vain to the cooler, and uh, but more of it. It's more of a, an, uh, uh, a sort of a poison letter to Hollywood, uh, mixed up as like a, basically it's going to be like uh, if Elmore Leonard uh, wrote Birdman. <laughs> oh, perfect. Okay, very yeah. good. Very good. Well, we've been listening at length to Wayne Kramer, who I knew would give us a great behind-the-scenes story on the cooler, and you have beautifully. I, every time I listen to the movie, uh, I, I, I think of just how great it is. It's, it's funny. I, I've listened to it so much that I can't remember the last time I actually saw it, but the, I, I hope they can get a Blu-ray out. They're putting Blu-rays out on everything. They might I know. Well that's it. what amazes me. The most obscure movies, the most yeah. obscure exploitation movies or movies you've never seen have got a Blu-ray. There was a Blu-ray done in the UK, but it's terrible. I don't recommend anybody see oh. it. However, if you've never bought, I do recommend you get that Blu-ray, uh, Steve, because it's got a feature-length making of the cooler on it. Where oh. Alec Baldwin and William H Macy participate, and Mark Isham and everybody, and uh, it's the ultimate behind the scenes. I don't think they'll ever improve on it, but that's the only reason to buy that disc, not for the movie. Got it, got it. Well, we've um, we've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies and Wayne Kramer, and uh, as I've mentioned before, I'm your host Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. Wayne, thank you so much for taking the time to go down memory lane for you. And I wish you tremendous luck with your new film. Uh, thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Be well. Happy New Year, by the way. Okay, you too. Take care.